Hello and welcome to Champagne and Murder, please. I am your host, Brittany. And can you feel it? Do you feel that? Christmas is almost here. It's almost, almost here. We're so close. We're at the finish line. And there's going to be no more elves or hiding gifts in super random spots and then forgetting where you left them. Not that happened to me. <clears throat> okay, maybe it did. Um, but really, I am excited for Christmas because I get to see the joy in my kids' eyes when they open their gifts and see all the the magic on Christmas morning. I know it's worth all the work and the debt. Just kidding. <laughs> we're worth it. So they were definitely worth it. But I hope you are filled with excitement and not anxiety, which I know most of you are with anxiety, just like me. So it's okay. Um, I know it's probably a little of both you got some excitement going on in there but it's mostly anxiety i get it <laughs> did you finish your shopping i didn't um i'll have to do that after i'm done here um hopefully <laughs> before i have to go back to work too um i did get some gifts early from two of the beautiful ladies that i work with and have the privilege of calling friends i got uh awesome oogie boogie planter and some crystals for my car and i got oh i got a notebook that wasn't part of the present but it was still part of the present i really enjoyed it <laughs> and i got a oogie boogie keychain that says i'm the shadow on the moon at night and it's got like a little oogie boogie there it's really cute i really really like it and then i got the most bizarre true crime stories ever told. So that'll come in handy for this podcast. So I'm excited to dive into that too. I was very, very excited and surprised by my friends. So shout out to Brittany and Shuby. Thank you. Um, Let's see. Today I am drinking a bubbly Moscato Spumante champagne sparkling wine. Say that all in one sentence. And it's only like... 10 bucks at Target, so you can get multiples for when you have to go and visit your family this weekend and this coming week. Um, you'll have plenty, it'll be great, and it's cheap enough you could even share if you really felt like it. So, there's that. So, for today, I have some Icelandic folklore stories for you that pertain to Christmas and some of their beliefs. So, Let's get into it, because I got a lot of stuff to do today, guys. All right, you ready? So in Icelandic Christmas folklore, they have mountain-dwelling characters and monsters that like to come down during Christmas. Kind of reminds me of the Grinch a little bit. They only come down at Christmas and cause trouble. These stories, like most folklore, are directed at children and are usually used to scare them into behaving for their parents. But, I mean, who doesn't need that? Come on. This folklore includes some mischievous pranksters who leave gifts at night and monsters who will eat children who don't behave. The figures are depicted as living all together as a family in a cave and include Gryla, who is an ogress with an appetite for the flesh of misbehaved children, whom she cooks in a large pot. And her husband, Lipaluli, I hope I'm saying that right, is a lazy bum and mostly just stays in the cave. Doing what? I'm not really sure. Everybody just says he stays in the cave. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't like people. 
And the Yule Cat is a huge, vicious cat who likes to lurk in the countryside at Christmas time and eats people who have not received any new clothes to wear before Christmas Eve. So, you thought getting clothes for Christmas was bad, but in Iceland, you want those clothes so you don't get eaten by a giant cat. Now, we come to the main event, the Yule Lads. So the Yule lads are said to be the sons or sometimes the brothers of Gryla and Lepaluli. Yeah, that's how you say it. Sure. There are 13 of them and they are the pranksters who will steal from or just generally harass the people of the town. And they all have names that coincide with their favorite way of harassing. They will come down to the town one by one during the last 13 nights before Yule they will leave small gifts and shoes that children have placed on their windowsills. But if the child has been naughty, they will instead leave a rotten potato in the shoe. Gross. These Christmas-related folktales first appeared around the 17th century and displayed some variation based on region and age, like most folklore tales. In modern times, these characters have shifted slightly to more benevolent roles. The first mention of the Yule Lads can be found in the 17th century poem of Gryla. She had appeared in some older tales, like as a troll, but she hadn't been linked to Christmas before this one. She has been described as a hideous being who is mother to the gigantic Yule Lads, which I've only seen them like so shown short, like the few pictures that I got to see. Drawings, not pictures. <laughs> but... Um, they are menace to children. Early on, the number and depictions of the Yule Lads varied largely, largely, good lord, depending on the location. Similar to the Boogeyman, they were used to keep the kids in line, and the King of Denmark objected to their use of this as a disciplinary tool. In the late 18th century, a poem mentions 13 of them. In the mid-19th century, author John Arneson drew his inspiration from the Brothers Grimm, and he began collecting folk tales. His 1862 collection is the first mention of the names of the Yule Lads. In the 1932 poem, Yule Lads, it was published as part of the popular poetry book Christmas is Coming by Icelandic poet Johannes Erkotlum. I'm probably mispronouncing that, so I apologize. The poem became popular and it established what is now considered the conical, like, 13 Yule Lads, their names and their personalities. But coming back to Gryla and Lepali, Luli, Lepaluli. So Gryla is an ogress, like I said, and she was first mentioned in the 13th century texts such as Icelandiga Saga and Sveris Saga. But again, she wasn't connected to Christmas until the 17th century. She is gigantic, and her appearance is said to be repulsive. The oldest poems about Gryla depict her as a parasitic beggar. Lovely. She walks around and asks parents to give her their naughty children. But her plans can be thwarted by either giving her some food, because you're not you and you're hungry, or just chasing her away. So just like a bear, be big and scary. Well, certain bears. Be big and be scary, and they'll go away. It'll be fine. Um, and before dwelling in this cave, she lived in a small cottage, but she had been chased out of town in later poems, and that is how she came to live in the cave. So modern-day Gryla is said to be able to detect disobedient children all year round, so everybody better watch out. 
and she comes down from the mountains during Christmas to search the nearby towns for her next meal. She hunts down children and carries them home in her giant sack, and she devours them as a little snack. Her favorite dish is a stew made of naughty children, for which her appetite is insatiable. And according to the legend, there is never a shortage of food for Gryla. So according to the folklore, Gryla is also on her third marriage. Her third husband, Lepaluli, lives with her and her sons in the cave along with the big black Yule cat. Lepaluli is lazy and mostly stays home. That's really anything, whatever anybody says about him. There's like nothing else. Gryla supposedly has dozens of other children with her previous husbands, but no one really talks about them anymore. So now we get into the Yule Lads and what they're all about. The Yule Lads, sometimes called the Yuletide Lads or Yulemen, are the sons of Gryla and Lepaluli. There are 13 of them, and they are troublemakers who like to steal from people and also harass them. Each one of them has a name that correlates to their favorite way of causing mischief. And they come down from the mountain one by one during the 13 nights leading up to Christmas or Yule. And much like their mother, the Yule lads were originally depicted by John Arneson as not as gift-giving lads, but as kidnappers of misbehaving children, along with their other many pranks. But in modern times, the Yule lads have been portrayed as more benevolent, like a Santa Claus or other such figure. They are usually shown wearing late medieval Icelandic clothing, but sometimes can be seen wearing a more Santa Claus-like suit, but that's mostly for children events. So, Each Yule lad arrives individually, and they stay for a visit of 13 days, starting on December 12th. And once the first lad departs on Christmas Day, the rest leave each day until January 6th. Here is the rundown of all 13 Yule lads and what they like to do during Christmas. So we have Sheep Coat Claude, he harasses sheep, but is impaired by his stiff peg legs, and he's the first one to come, and the first one to leave. And then there's Gully Gawk. He hides in gullies, waiting for an opportunity to sneak into the cow shed and steal milk. And he comes on December 13th. Then we have Stubby. He's abnormally short, but you couldn't guess that by his name. Steals pans for the bits stuck on to the bottoms and brims. And he comes the 14th. Now, Spoon Licker, I mean, self-explanatory, but here we go, steals wooden spoons being used for cooking, extremely thin from malnutrition. Well, you're not eating enough, you're licking spoons. He comes on the 15th. Pot Scraper steals pots to scrape out the leftovers. He comes the 16th. Bowl Licker hides under beds awaiting the wooden food bowls placed on the floor. And he comes the 17th. Door Slammer, bet you can't guess what he does, enjoys slamming doors, especially during the night, waking up the whole household, and he comes on the 18th. So the 19th, Skyer Gobbler, I'm probably not saying that right, has a great affinity for Skyer, a regional style of yogurt. I'm probably skier or something, sorry. Um, the 20th, Sausage Swiper, comes... And he hides in the rafters and snatches sausages that are being smoked. On the 21st, we have Window Peeper, a snoop who looks through windows in search of things to steal. So he's casing the joint. On the 22nd, we have Doorway Sniffer. 
He has an abnormally large nose and an acute sense of smell, which he uses to locate leaf bread. And then the 23rd, we have Meat Hook. Uses a hook to steal meat. I mean, good name for him. And then the 24th is Candle Beggar. He follows children to steal their precious candles made of tallow and thus edible. So he lights them and eats them? I'm not really sure. But before their popularization, regional folklore offered variations on their mythos. Some were said to be Gryla's sons, while others said they were her brothers. But each lad was still associated with a characteristic prank or thing that they do. Some variations even said that there were only nine lads. But most of the obscure Yule lads fall into three groups. Those who steal food, those who like to play tricks or harass people, and those who seem to be delusional from nature, like... Gully Gawk, who just hides in the gullies. Like, did I see something? Maybe not. I'm not sure. And a tale central to eastern Iceland described the Yule Lads as originating from the ocean instead of the mountains. One very rare nursery rhyme mentions two female Yule pranksters that steal melted fat by shoving it up their noses or putting it in their socks. Both great places to store fat. Sure. So those are the 13 Yule Lads and their pranks. Happy Yule. Now on to the one thing I touched on a little bit in the last story about the Yule Cat. So you all know the Yule Cat, and that cat was huge indeed. Everybody knew he hunted men, but didn't care for mice. These lines were from the poem The Yule Cat by the Icelandic poet Johannes Urkutlum probably saying that incorrectly, and again, I apologize. It first appeared in his book, Christmas is Coming, published in 1932, with many subsequent editions, and even an English translation published in 2015. Johannes's poems about the Yule Lads, Gryla, Lepiluli, and the Yule Cat became an instant classic, defining Icelandic Christmas folklore for generations. Johannes' verses fixed the number of Yule Lads, their names, and the order in which they come in the days leading up to Christmas. They established the ogres Gryla and Lepiluli as their parents and popularized the idea that Gryla had even eventually died from hunger. His main source was John Arneson's collection of folklore and folktales, first published in 1862 and then republished by the Historical Society in 1929. The illustrations for the poems made by Iceland's first professional illustrator, and I'm not going to say his name right, um, his last name is Magnuson, so, yep. Also created an image of, quote, unquote, old Icelandic Christmas. Later, around 1970, Ingeborg something, I'm not even going to try because I'm going to mess it up, composed popular songs for Johannes's poems. Taken together, the poems and the illustrations and the songs, they conveyed an idealistic, idealized Christmas with a romantic rural, rural flair and a firm footing in John Arneson's 19th century collection of folktales. They defined what was traditionally Icelandic in what was then, as now, a Bergios festival with traditions copied from Denmark, Germany, the UK, and US. Since then, the Yule Cat has been a staple figure of the festivities in Iceland, found in Christmas decorations, illustrations, and school plays. The 
Yule Cat's song about the cat was introduced to a new generation with Bjork's memorable interpretation on the Christmas record City and Town Are White in 1987. In the past few years, this Icelandic Christmas monster has also been making the rounds on websites around the world, partly due to an article that appeared in the Icelandic English language magazine Reykjavik Grapevine in 2008. Written by journalist Hakur S. Magnuson and illustrated by comic artist Dag Dagson. We're just going to go with that. This article has been widely summarized and expanded in webzines like Smithsonian Magazine and the lineup. While the Yule Cat's popularity has long been well established in Iceland, it seems to be finally getting the international recognition it deserves. Because it's a giant cat. Why not? But where does it really come from and what makes it so appealing today? Looking at the research tells us we find two conflicting theories about the origins of the Yule Cat put forward by two colleagues from the National Museum of Iceland. Arne Bjornsson is one of the best-known folklorists living in Iceland today. His meticulous research into the Icelandic ritual calendar, including the origins of traditions connected with festivities and celebrations, was published in two best-selling books in 1980 and 1981. His 800-page opus magnum, Saga Dagana, The History of Days, was published in 2000. It is a vital resource for folklorists in Iceland. Like many folklorists of his generation, Bjornsson has been a proponent of healthy skepticism when confronting folk tales, folk beliefs, and supposedly old customs. In a famous article in Skirnir, I'm saying that wrong, he published in 1996, he suggested that many elements of folk belief were simply folk fiction, stories meant to entertain rather than expression of genuine belief. In the case of the Yule Cat, Bjornsson notes... The limited 19th century source material, which is almost entirely based on a paragraph in John Arneson's collection of folktales. There it is called an evil beast that would either eat those who got no new clothes for Christmas or steal their Christmas bit, which is food given to the residents of the farm. In a footnote, Arneson mentions the figure of speech, quote-unquote, to dress the cat, or, quote-unquote, dress the Yule cat, which happens to those who didn't get new clothes for Christmas. This footnote is based on one of his major sources, John Norman. While it is unclear where he gets the idea of the evil beast, the meaning may be simply that cats never change clothes. I mean, why would they? Sometimes the unfortunate ones were said to quote-unquote do the cat or be quote-unquote taken by the cat, which leads Bjornsson to conclude that the Yule cat was a figure of speech that Arneson may have misinterpreted as a monster. Bjornsson was, for many years, the head of the Folk Life Collection of the National University of Iceland, and he used the questionnaires extensively in the history of days. Many respondents in the collection were aware of this figure of speech, but were unsure as to its origin. So while Bjornsson's conclusions listed above come from the history of days, this idea was first put forward in his book, In a Christmas Spirit published in 1983, and other works. His colleague at the National Museum of Iceland, archaeologist Gomundur Olafsson, criticized this argument in an article in the Icelandic Antiquarian Society Yearbook of 1989. Olafsson finds parallels to the Yule Cat in the variety of beings that traditionally accompany St. Nicholas in many European countries. 
This is often proposed as the origin of the Scandinavian Christmas goat or jewel book. The goat probably originally stood for the devil, making it a close relation of the Alpine Krampus. Just like goats, cats, especially black cats, have been associated with the devil. Maybe the devil likes white cats. You didn't ask him, so you don't know. Um, Olafsson finds a direct reference in uh, a Dutch Christmas bread, a Lukasat, a Swedish pastry. Olafsson's hypothesis is that the Yule cat may have originated as one of St. Nicholas's followers in Catholic times, when the patron saint of travelers and fishermen was popular in Iceland, as demonstrated by the many churches dedicated to him. Olafsson also mentions the Icelandic cycle of folktales involving Samander the Learned, who was a priest of the Church of Adi, which was dedicated to St. Nicholas, and his dealings with the devil. These tales may have originally been about the saint and later transferred to the priest. A festival involving some form of performance where the saint arrives with a cat-like demon on a leash might have been celebrated in Adi in medieval times. The lack of older sources for the Yule cat does not, in itself, say much as the sources for any kind of popular culture in the past tend to be limited because it was oral tradition, not written down. The parallels between the Scandinavian Christmas goat and the Yule cat were noted by Terry Gunnell in his 1995 book, The Origins of Drama in Scandinavia. An expert on medieval religious drama and mumming or guising traditions in Northern Europe, Gunnell has led the folklorist, folkloristics department of the University of Iceland for many years. Elsewhere, he mentions that figures of devilish animals appear in traditional performances around Christmas, where people dress up in animal skins with animal masks. Such costumes are mentioned in Icelandic sources about the Vicky Vaki dances held around Christmas and at other times until the 18th century, when the church started campaigning against them. Perhaps the Yule cat originated as a guise used in traditional performance at Christmas. So, whatever its origins, after the publication of the Jolincoma in 1932, the cat was firmly established as part of quote-unquote old Icelandic pantheon of Christmas beings for generations of Icelanders. The author of this article remembers having learned Ingeborg Horberg's, sorry, it's Yule Cat, but in, I, I can't do it, song as a child. He also remembers making a cat's tail by cutting cardboard paper into a spiral that was appended to a cat-like paper figure to be hung up on Christmas as a decoration along with the popular garlands known for the moostrappy in Danish. Moostrap? I'm not sure. The Yule cat had, in the 1970s, become part of Christmas decorations in Icelandic homes, just like the Scandinavian Christmas goat, which is now primarily known as a traditional decorative figure made of straw. In the book The Yule Cat, the cat appears in the separate poem and is not connected with the ogres, Gryla, and Lepoluli, or their sons, the Yule Lads. It seems, however, that including in it in the same book had the effect of associating the man-eating cat with the family of man-eating trolls. I mean, I can see how they put two and two together. Family wanted a pet cat. It has to eat people. It's just a requirement. The cat appears as the pet of the Yule Lads at least since the middle of the 20th century, but whereas the originally mischievous Yule Lads were quote-unquote reformed, 
as somewhat simple-minded country yokels handing out small presents at children's festivals during the advent, the cat retained its evil nature and even started to make mischief as the Yule lads had done before, in addition to eating the poor people, of course. In one reinterpretation, the cat is so unruly that only Stufer, the smallest of the Yule lads, and every child's favorite, is able to control it, using it as a steed to ride around the countryside. At the same time, in many modern illustrations, Gryla has taken on the traditional image of the witch appearing with a broomstick and a big pot with her familiar, the Yule Cat. Cooking and eating children is a common trait of witches, of course, so, I mean, obviously. These and other illustrations have regularly made their appearance on websites dedicated to the darker side of Christmas. The cannibalistic Yule Cat appeals to an adult audience willing to explore the many and varied folk horror aspects of the traditionally family-friendly holiday. There is also, well, cats. Some people would claim that their appeal needs no explanation at all. Obviously, you just love the cat. I mean, I love it, so there you go. In November 2018, a new Christmas decoration appeared in the center of Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland. The city tends to be conventional, but when it comes to Christmas decorations, with the same light bulb series and garlands set up year after year, this time, however, the city council collaborated and with a gardening center to set up a five-meter-tall light-filled iron sculpture portraying the Yule Cat with a somewhat menacing appearance in the city's central square. The cat sculpture got a lot of praise for style and workmanship, but also obviously provoked criticism from the representative of the Socialist Party in the city government. She posted a Facebook status on the occasion of its unveiling, decrying the lack of any mention of poverty and the plight of low-income families living in the city. The Yule Cat eats children who do not get new clothes for Christmas, and that is exactly the situation in many of these families. Her status takes this as a clear example of how the city is willing to spend money on decorations that attract people to the commercial city center while ignoring the situation of the less fortunate citizens. So, I mean, she's got a point. But it's a Yule cat, and it's made with Christmas lights. Sorry. In her 2011 article in Museum Anthropology Review entitled Traditional Culture, How Does It Work? American folklorist Dorothy Noyes notes that traditional folklore is designed for continual recycling and repurposing, as well as for ease of transmission. We have seen how, in true folklore fashion, the Yule Cat has taken on diverse forms, navigating different contexts, inspiring different practices, and attaching different meanings. It can be a figure of speech or a guising costume, a giant beast that threatens to eat the poor, or a mischievous or unruly cat. A simple Christmas decoration or a symbol of indifference to poverty, while the folk horror aspect of the cannibalistic Yule Cat ensures its distribution on websites around the world, the beast demonstrates its versatility by adapting to new realities and political contexts in Iceland. The Yule Cat has even been featured in an episode of the PBS series Monstrum that I recommend watching. It was actually very fun. And if you ever find yourself celebrating Christmas in Iceland, Make sure to get some new clothes under the tree. Those socks will come in handy when the Yule Cat appears on your window. And that is the long way around the Yule Cat. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Champagne and Murder, please. I really do appreciate all of you. All eight of you who listened last week. (laughs) 
Um, I hope that you guys have an amazing Christmas and Kwanzaa because that's coming up too. Um, I will not have an episode out next week because I'm going to spend time with my family. So you'll get an episode next year. Oh my goodness. It's already here. I feel like it, we just like snapped our fingers and all of a sudden it's the end of the year. Um, if you guys have any stories for us, your Christmas traditions, your Hanukkah traditions, your Kwanzaa tradition, whatever it is, whatever you celebrate, any traditions you want to share with us, we would gladly love to receive them and read about them or know about them. And um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at champagneandmurderplease at gmail.com. Uh, we are on the socials. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram and TikTok. Also, have a safe and happy new year so you guys can come back and listen to me next year. <laughs> and with that, stay safe and don't take candy from strangers. Goodbye.